everyone and welcome back to the Europelex podcast. I'm Gabriel Hedengren and with me, of course, is my very good friend, Ewan Healy. Hi, Ewan. Hey, Gabriel. How are you doing this week? Yeah, all good, all good. Um, I can't really complain. Everything's going in the right direction where we are, I guess. And since um, our last episode, I got the vaccine or the first dose anyway. So that's exciting. Congratulations. That is very exciting. Thank you. It feels a bit surreal to be honest and I do really hope that uh, over the next coming months more and more of our European and uh, global followers will will get theirs too so we can get out of this um, hellhole of a situation we've been in. <laughs> How about you? How are you? Yeah I'm all right thank you. I'm, I'm not vaccinated but lots of my more at risk loved ones and family and friends are vaccinated so things do feel like they're moving in the right direction it feels like the end is in sight gabriel which it hasn't felt like that's been true for quite a while and i should say before anyone gets any thoughts that i am also um in a risk group so i haven't just um cut the lines um for this story (laughs) Uh, so don't worry i'm following all the rules uh and the health priority list um here in the uk Yes, all of our listeners were imagining you breaking into a vaccination centre in the dead of night, steal a vaccine right out of the hands of an old age pensioner. Yeah, um, not my style at all. Although I know it's been it's been happening in some places, but um, not too much. It's all going smoothly. So in this episode, we'll obviously bring you the latest news as always. Uh, we'll also uh, get to know a couple of Irish parties a little better. And you and um, you'll interview uh, Lauren Stassens, who's the lead candidate for the Dutch party Vault, who's hoping to become the first elected representative um, in the country in the elections that are, are coming up um, this month. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting interview. So do stick around for that. Something else that more eagle-eyed viewers will have already noticed is that last week you received History Corner straight into your inbox, independent of this podcast. That basically comes from the fact that we have loved how much our audience have loved hearing about historical elections. Uh, and we've, we've loved talking about them. We've loved writing that podcast. And so we have decided to devolve some authority to Matthew to produce some standalone mini episodes for each month of the year on an election of the past. So that's pretty exciting. So every month in the final week of the month, you'll see an episode of or a mini episode of History Corner landing in your inbox, ready to go. You don't need to do anything. He'll come straight away alongside this podcast. Now, just a quick reminder on that, that patrons, our Patreon patrons, do pick the elections that we cover um, in History Corner. So if you want to help craft it, get on Patreon and get voting. Speaking of which, here's a little message on how you could support us before we then go on to do what we usually do and check out the headlines have been going on in a recent couple of weeks in the continent. Europelex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. Everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of Europelex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon.
We start this week's news with a story that has uh, just unfolded in the last 24 hours or so before we recorded this podcast. There has been a huge piece of news that has been a long time coming in the Brussels bubble. There has been a breakup of Europe's most drama-filled couple of Fidesz and the EPP. Yeah, believe it or not, they've finally separated after months and years of disagreements between uh, the EPP and the Hungarian party led by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. So on Wednesday morning, the MEPs of the EPP in the European Parliament voted to change their procedure laws. The first change was to raise the threshold that was needed to exclude members. But the second, which is the key part, is that MEPs would now be able to exclude the entire delegation of a party just in one vote, which opened up the possibility for Fidesz's 11 MEPs to be kicked out of the group in the European Parliament. So in response, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban made it clear that he wouldn't stand for this. He called it anti-democratic. And what he did was immediately sent a letter to Manfred Weber, the chairman of the EPP group in the European Parliament, informing him that Fidesz would be withdrawing its 11 MPs, reducing the number of the centre-right group to 175. Fidesz had also been suspended from full membership um, for, for, for about two years, but the centre-right political group in the European Parliament had actually not kicked them out up until this point, and, and still haven't, is worth saying. This is actually a really big story for centre-right parties in Europe, and it will be really interesting to see how Fidesz respond in the coming months, especially as a united opposition threatens their hegemony in Hungary. Yeah, and it's it's been a long time coming too, so um, yeah, big splash this week. So now let's go through some electoral news, because that's what we love the most, I guess, at Europe Relax. And back to February 14th, Valentine's Day, that now feels like ages ago. But anyway, that day, Salonia went to the polls for regional elections. And due to COVID and fears of polling station transmission, turnout unfortunately collapsed by a massive 28 percentage points compared to the 2017 elections. But despite that, for the first time ever, pro-independence parties won a majority of the seats in the Catalan parliament, despite Salvador um, Ilas uh, center-left PSC getting 16 seats and becoming the co-largest party with Green EFA affiliate. Um, ERC. So big news, obviously, that uh, this group of parties now control majority in that parliament. Junts Percat also saw a surge in result, winning 12 more seats than their 20 in the previous election. And apart from the pro-Catalan parties, the big uh, surge was seen by right-wing uh, Vox, or far-right, I would say. They managed to enter the parliament for the first time ever, winning 11 seats, uh, which meant they came in uh, fourth place. The greatest collapse, on the other hand, to no one's surprise, really, came from the incumbent largest party, which is the liberal Ciudadanos. The party lost 30 of the 36 seats, while the center-right PDECAT uh, lost all representation in parliament, suffering from no longer being a member of the Junts electoral coalition. So as you might imagine, the pro-independence parties want to use the fact they now hold this majority of seats to install a regional president who not only backs a referendum, but also backs an eventual independence for the northeast region of Spain. Meanwhile, Illa, who's leader of ESC, uh, has asserted that actually he deserves the presidency as his list received the most votes. So more to come as always as these negotiations move on. So keep an eye on our channels and we'll obviously keep everyone posted on um, public opinion surrounding the independence and how that impacts electoral politics in Spain as a whole. 
Yes, absolutely. And another election that happened actually on the same day that we're still waiting for the final impacts of is the elections, the snap elections in Kosovo, which saw the left-wing LVV, self-determination, as they are known in English, affiliated to the SND, surge to a massive stonking victory, if you don't mind me saying, on 48% of the vote, leaving the traditional ruler party PDK, which is affiliated to the ECR, with just 17% of the vote. And the conservative LDK, affiliated with the EPP, down to 13% in third place. So Albin Kurti, the leader of the LVV, campaigned, as we've talked about before on the podcast, as an anti-establishment candidate, focused more on corruption and less on relations with Serbia, which is obviously a massive issue in Kosovo politics since Kosovo gained independence. He's considered a more hardline individual on negotiations with Belgrade and has actually talked favorably about a theoretical referendum for union with Albania, which he said he would support, um, which obviously uh, would be a major impact on the region. And he has also talked about applying for EU accession. As prime minister, he will have to guide his party through talks with Serbia, which the EU is, is calling for as a prerequisite for any further negotiations with the EU. Before all of this, however, he will have to see the election of a new president go through the parliament. This is a really important part of Kosovar politics. And a president needs the support of two thirds of the votes of the 120 members of parliament. The current favourite for this position is acting President Vyos Osmani, whose support for LVV during the elections helped Kurti significantly. So keep an eye on our channels for the results of the presidential nomination and election in Kosovo. So moving away from electoral news now then, we're now going to talk about the political crisis in Armenia that's going on at the moment that intensified this week. And this uh, happened after an interview with the current Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, disparaged the performance um, Russian-made weaponry made during the 2020 Karabakh War. Also, the military chiefs of the general staff uh, called for him to resign uh, as a result of this. The crisis has escalated since, with protests both supporting the current Prime Minister uh, and counter-protests um, demanding his resignation. Alongside all that, attempts by Pashinyan to fire the members of the military calling for his removal, which he is describing as a coup, uh, have been blocked by the sitting president, Armyen Sarksyan. So President Sarksyan has held meetings between both the general staff and the leaders of the opposition parties, although he's not formally called for the prime minister to resign uh, himself as of yet. Premier Pashinyan of the last few days has offered to hold a referendum on establishing a semi-presidential system in Armenia and discuss the possibility of new elections as well. Armenia has been politically unstable since its defeat in the Second Karabakh War some four months ago now, with many blaming the defeat and capitulation of much of the Armenian-aligned Artsakh Republic's territory on Nikol Pashinyan's leadership. Meanwhile, Russia, who currently maintains the ceasefire lines between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, has called for calm in the country, saying that any change in power must be constitutional. So yeah, um, you know you're in bad shape when Russia is lecturing you about democratic and constitutional um, constraint. <laughs> um, so we hope everything gets resolved there. Obviously, if there are any news around elections or any other major developments, we'll be um, updating you through through our channels. Yeah, I'm really interested in in whether a semi-presidential system could work in Armenia um, in a similar way to it does in, in other countries in the region. There's lots to look out for there in terms of constitutional change for constitutional nerds like me. Now, in the Caucasus Mountains elsewhere, Georgia has got a new prime minister this week after former Prime Minister Georgi Gakaria announced his resignation 
over the arrest of an opposition politician, Nika Melia. Now, Melia is accused of inciting violence during anti-government protests in 2019 and is set to be tried in court. And the court had requested he be remanded into custody before that trial. It's currently unclear what exactly the disagreement amongst the cabinet and the government over this request was, but it's caused big divisions amongst the ruling classes of Georgia. Former Prime Minister Irakli Garabashvili has returned to the role of Prime Minister now that Gakaria has vacated it after Garabashvili served as Prime Minister between 2013 and 2015. I should say, of course, this actually doesn't represent a change in regime. Both Gakaria and Garabashvili are members of the centre-left capsule party Georgian Dream. This crisis comes, of course, just a few months after parliamentary elections, which were heavily boycotted and saw opposition parties renounce their seats in Parliament. Lots to keep an eye on there, and doesn't look like stability is here to stay in Georgian politics. So going west then, um, in France, it seems like what goes around actually comes around from time to time. So on Monday uh, at the start of this week, former French president Nicolas Sarkozy was finally sentenced to three years in prison for corruption. He was found guilty of the crime of offering to bribe a judge with a position in Monaco in return for information about an investigation into his campaign finances and the accusation that he had accepted illegal support from uh, L'Oréal heiress Liliane Betancourt. Uh, Sarkozy's sentence is suspended to one year in prison, but he's expected to appeal and will not be incarcerated until the whole process ends, of course. He is the first former president to be sentenced to imprisonment. Uh, Jacques Chirac was sentenced uh, in 2011 with a two-year suspended sentence. The damage, however, is not only moral, but it's, it also has political consequences, uh, as you might imagine. Um, the decision of the court rules out any plans by his party, which is the right-wing um, Les Républicains, that sits with the European People's Party um, in the European Parliament. This basically means that Sarkozy uh, will not be able to run as their candidate in the 2022 presidential um, elections in France, uh, making the upcoming elections even more interesting and uncertain. So it's more of an open field regarding who will represent the party in that poll. So obviously, as that... Um, develops we'll we'll keep you posted and uh even though we're a year away now we're all getting um excited about about that monumental um runoff next year crossing off the days on the calendar until the french presidential election yeah. but it will be really interesting to see who les republicains chooses their candidate now that sarkozy is ineligible Stick around until the end of the episode to hear me talk to Lawrence Dassens, the Dutch lead candidates for the party Vault. But before we visit the Netherlands, let's hop over to Ireland to do our recurring segment on the flip side. This week's On the Flip Side segment, uh, we'll be looking at two different national political parties as we head to one of Europe's island nations, namely Ireland. The Republic of Ireland acceded to the European communities in 1973 after its establishment under the current constitution in 1937. And since then, the country has had 32 governments, which our first party to be discussed have led all but nine. I'm talking about uh, Fianna Foyle, um, and they're a party with a slightly difficult uh, to define ideology as it encompasses different groups in Irish society. 
they caucus with the Liberal Renew Europe group um, in the in the European Parliament. However, it's not very clear what what its um, ideology is, and it's obviously shifted throughout the years as well as um, as it goes in politics. Uh, the party was founded as a result from a split within the Rump group of Sinn Féin, uh, who opposed the treaty with the UK, which led to the foundation of the Irish Republic's predecessor state, which was the Irish Free State. In 1926, influential Irish founding father Eamon de Valera established the party in order to bring members of the Republican movement into parliamentary politics uh, and away from uh, paramilitary activity. From the foundation of the modern state until 2011, the party has been the largest party in every election. So it's really uh, a dominant and very long-lasting force in Irish electoral politics. The party contains within it strong conservative, Christian democratic and populist elements, but is uh, seen as a catch-all party, as I alluded to before. Um, This is largely linked to the party's strength within Irish historic civil society, its support amongst both small farmers in the countryside, as well as workers in the cities, uh, and its links to the struggle for Irish independence from Great Britain. Like all parties in the Republic of Ireland, advocates for Irish reunification, that is to see the entire island of Ireland reunited under one independent rule, instead of the current situation in which some northern counties remain part of the United Kingdom. Fianna Foyle's catch-all credentials um, led them to being the dominant party in Irish politics, as I've said, but there's been a slow and steady decrease in popularity really since the the second half, really, of the 20th century. Uh, But this has then accelerated since the 2008 financial crisis that saw Ireland be hit particularly hard. The party has since dropped from 42% of the vote in 2007 uh, to just 175 in 2011, which is obviously um, a huge loss. The party returned to government in 2020, winning 22% of the vote. Um, so up a little, they formed a coalition with um, what, what's their longtime rival, uh, Fine Gael. And the current head of government in Ireland, Michal Martin, is the leader of Fianna Foyle. So they're still very much um, up there and a huge uh, part of Irish electoral politics, but they're not as dominant um, as they once were. On the flip side, however, of Irish politics is a party who have been the junior partner in a governing coalition the most times. The proportionality of the Irish electoral system, which is single transferable vote, means that the country has a long, long history of coalition governments. And the Labour Party has been the party to most frequently be a junior partner in those coalitions. On eight separate occasions in the last 90 years, the Labour Party has held the position of Tanast, which is to serve as the deputy head of government under governments from both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. The party was founded in 1912 as the political wing of the trade union movement in a similar way to other traditional centre-left parties in countries such as the UK or Spain. The party first entered government in 1948 as the second largest party in a coalition under Fine Gael. This was the first time Ireland had ever been run by a party that wasn't Fianna Fáil. The party continued to see relative success under William Norton, their then leader who was the Tanast in 1948, and then again in 1954. The only time the party has entered coalition with Fianna Foyle was in 1992, when the leader, Dick Spring, one of the best names in European politics I've ever read, led the party to their then highest result ever, receiving 33 seats on 19.3% of the vote. The party topped this in 2011, winning 37 seats and entering government with Fine Gael again before losing 30 of those seats in the following election. The Labour Party is a traditional pro-European centre-left party ideologically, which obviously includes a cross-section of the left. 
and is a member of the Party of European Socialists and the S&D Group, despite not currently holding any of the Irish MEP seats. What you're going to see here is two parties, uh, both very relevant to Irish history and Irish government, but in slightly different ways. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Welcome back to the EuropeLex podcast, friends. Uh, after uh, what has been a rather tumultuous 2021 in political terms for our friends in the Netherlands, they will head to the polls for parliamentary elections this month between the 15th and 17th of March. Now, as many of you will know, especially our more nerdy followers, the Netherlands is known for its incredibly proportional electoral system. So lots of parties end up represented in the parliament due to the country's open list electoral system with no electoral threshold, which means that any party which receives about 0.67% of the vote on the national level, that's one 150th of the vote, will get a seat in the parliament. Now, one party set to benefit from this as a newcomer to Dutch elections is the pan-European party, Volt. So with me today to discuss their chances is Lawrence Dassens, the lead candidate for Volt Netherlands. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the introduction and happy to be here. Great to have you on. So let's dive right in. With recent polls looking good for your party, looking at around 1% in the uh, coming election and thus obviously entering parliament the first time. Are, are you feeling excited? Are you feeling confident? Yeah, of course. Um, it's, it's very exciting at the moment. I mean, we have been working for, uh, for many years now, or for three years, to, to run up uh, to these elections. And uh, what you see right now is that uh, we are really being picked up by uh, the media, by social media, by a lot of people who finally see in Volt uh, a new uh, political sound, which they have been searching for. Uh, and it's very exciting to see that we are in the polls right now. And um, so I'm very confident that we will enter the, the, the parliament on the 17th of March. So what is it that you offer that other parties haven't been offering? So um, it's it's the true European uh, uh, spirit that we have as Volt, of course. So we are, uh, as Volt, being present in all uh, countries within the European Union uh, with one program um, to solve the big challenges that we face in the 21st century, like climate change, migration, uh, security, uh, corona, uh, and social uh, equality. And people within the Netherlands uh, are a little bit fed up with the, um, the, the, the polarization uh, between uh, uh, people and also uh, from political parties. And, and we bring an, uh, connecting sounds where we want to connect people across borders, where we want to connect people with nature uh, to ensure that we uh, uh, yeah, uh, solve these challenges. And I think uh, that people are, uh, are ready for this sound. But aren't, you know, Pivota R are a member of PES, D66 are a member of uh, ALDA. Are, are they not part of pan-European party families with one goal? So the interesting thing, uh, what you see uh, at the moment is that within the European Parliament, you only have national parties, which first come from the national interest to look at European or global challenges. And that is a mind shift that we want to, want to change. And you uh, 
I mentioned, for example, D66, uh, who is in the Renew group, uh, also together with the VVD, uh, which is uh, also a party within the Netherlands. One is more uh, pro-European, the other one is more conservative uh, towards Europe. Um, so there you already see the difference. And, and another interesting uh, part where you see that the, the trouble with national, national parties is that uh, we have uh, the CDA, which are the Christian Democrats, uh, who are also together in the European People's Party with uh, Viktor Orban, um, which, in my opinion, is something uh, that, that that should not be the case. Um, and if we want to strive for true European democracy, meaning that we, as a Europe, can act in an effective and uh, forceful way, then uh, we should change uh, the way from national politics to European politics, making it that uh, European parties are necessary. And they have not been present yet so far. Interesting. I mean, you've talked a lot about the your difficulties with the other parties in the political system in the Netherlands. Now, because of the polarized system that you mentioned in the Netherlands, often small parties can have a sizable influence in the national parliament. Are you thinking about getting into government, Lawrence? Well, I think the first uh, uh, hurdle that we need to take is to get into parliament. And uh, uh, that, that is the first step that we want to take. Um, and we want to ensure that all this growing in a sustainable way uh, in the Netherlands, but also in other countries to ma really make a difference in the long run. And of course, if we are able to, uh, uh, to, to change uh, and to uh, put on the agenda certain topics that are very important for us, then of course we are willing co to cooperate, um, may that be in government or not. What are your priorities then? I mean, you're unlikely to federalize Europe with one or two representatives in the Dutch parliament. What are your priorities in the short term? So in the short term, I think the first step that we really want to change is to uh, make sure that Europe becomes more of a uh, subject that is part of the discussion within the parliament in the Netherlands, which is currently, unfortunately, not the case. So we talk about these global challenges like migration, like climate, like security. Um, but Europe is never mentioned as a solution for these uh, issues, uh, never part of the solution. And I think that's the first step that we want to uh, ensure once in Parliament, that we make uh, the European Union part of the solution. Um, and not only by saying that the European Union is the best way to go, but also to criticize uh, the way the European Union is currently functioning. Um, so that is one thing that we want to do. And of course, we want to make sure that the climate agenda is more ambitious, uh, that we um, uh, invest more in education, because that is really the backbone of our society. Uh, and one of the personal things that I also find very important is, at the moment, we have a refugee camp uh, at the border of Europe, uh, Moria, uh, which is absolute disgrace for uh, for this time um, and um, i want to ensure that the netherlands takes up its responsibility to make sure that the refugees are uh, being taken on in a humane uh, manner uh, into the netherlands you talk about the refugee crisis and a lot of uh, you know colleagues across the european union have, have have raised this as an important issue now a lot of people have described europe as 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 like a lobster hard on the outside soft on the inside do you think that Europe's borders with the outside world are, are too strict, too exclusionary? No, what, I, uh, what I currently see is that we have not arranged within Europe a very well migration system. Um, there's still um, the Dublin uh, uh, Agreement, which leaves uh, Greece and Italy uh, almost standing alone with dealing with uh, refugees and migration. And I think we as Europe together should uh, ensure that 
refugees are being welcomed and are being placed within Europe in a safe and humane manner. Um, and at the same time, we should look at the structural uh, way we want to deal with migration, also with legal migration, uh, to ensure that there are safe uh, paths, uh, legal pathways uh, into Europe. It's interesting to hear you talk about this concept of European solidarity. Forgive me, but the Netherlands in recent years has not been known for its attitude to solidarity. Obviously, uh, Mark Rutte being an influential member of the Frugal Four. Do you think that this sort of, you know, and, and I should say that polls show that Dutch people have also got some sort of fiscally conservative instincts when it comes to the European Union as well, not just the political class. Do you think that this sort of fiscal conservatism, perhaps partial hostility, is compatible with some kind of closer union or Eurofederalism? So I think um, uh, what we've seen also last year, of course, with uh, Mark Rutte leading the Fugger 4, also within the Netherlands, there were a lot of people that were really uh, irritated by his uh, behavior. Uh, and indeed, within the Netherlands, we have a tendency to focus only on, uh, on budget control instead of uh, strengthening our economies and making sure that we have welfare and the well-being for everyone. Um, so I think um, within the Netherlands, we also should have a bigger look at what the European Union means to us. And I mean, it brings us prosperity, it brings us safety, it brings us the possibility to tackle the challenges that we face uh, in the 21st century. And I think there should be a shift in, in mindsets, especially from the political class, uh, because they also uh, should be the ones that ensure that people are taken along in the story of European cooperation. And at the moment, you see within the Netherlands that 80% of the people are positively looking towards European, co European cooperation. Um, and that is not reflected in the, in the Dutch parliament. So I think um, uh, the political class in that sense, is not a very well uh, representation of uh, the, the Dutch population. So how are you going to use, you know, one or two representatives or, you know, this movement, obviously you competed in the European elections, feels like a, an age ago, two years ago, um, and received a little bit over 1% of the vote. You know, how do you, how do you capitalize in the long term in, in changing hearts and minds in the Netherlands, but across Europe, to shift away from what has been a, you know, a significant tide of Euroscepticism. Yeah, so um, uh, I'm very proud that we are now being present in the European Parliament uh, with our uh, MEP uh, Damien Beuselager. Um, and we are represented in uh, local uh, councils in uh, Bulgaria, uh, Italy and uh, Germany. Uh, we are first participating in the Dutch elections. And I, I, you mentioned it absolutely correctly, because we need to grow to ensure that we change um, uh, the way politics is done in the long run, and also um, that we win the hearts and well, maybe not even win the hearts of mind, but that we show that a European cooperation bring, can bring us a lot of uh, um, good things. And one of the nice things that uh, we have been doing in recent uh, weeks, uh, last Saturday, for example, we had an event with um, our German uh, colleagues and uh, Dutch people that live near the border. And we discussed what are the issues that um, border regions face currently. And there you see, for example, that the housing market, uh, that's um, uh, on the side of the Netherlands, there's a town, and on the side of Germany, there's a town. Uh, and in Germany, they have housing short and in the Netherlands there are too many houses and um, but due to bad mobility and uh, fiscal differences um, of tax differences it's not able to connect very well so that is also something that we want to address furthermore to ensure that also people that live the European uh, life every day are also better connected and I think that is where we can also show the 
uh, yeah, the added value of faults on a local level. Yeah, that's really interesting to see those sort of uh, transverse issues that different people in, in, in such close areas are, are facing. You know, it particularly feels bizarre, obviously, in, in, in Schengen and with, with soft borders. It's very strange because also on the mobility side, I mean, public transport uh, just stops at the border. Uh, and if you work uh, in, in, in the Netherlands and live in Germany, then now with Corona, you face uh, very much difficulties. Because in the Netherlands, we have a concept of het nieuwe werk, which means that you can work from home, uh, which is apparently in Germany a different. Uh, uh, different. Um, but if you work uh, from home in Germany, then you also should pay taxes in Germany. So then you have to pay taxes twice. So um, all these difficulties, these, these barriers that we still face, even though we say we do not have borders, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, you know, issues that we can tackle. Lawrence, thank you very much. We could talk all day, but I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for bringing up these issues. And I think it's really interesting to hear um, your angle. We had a, a sort of more Eurosceptic voice on the podcast a few weeks ago from Norway. Now it's interesting to get a sort of really radically pro-European voice uh, on the podcast. And best of luck for the coming election. Thank you so much. And thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the EuroPlex podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at europelex.eu um, and at europelex across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at europe underscore lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. 